I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Let's call it the China Century. Without tears, without panic. The biggest country in the world, with now the biggest economy, and the best educated rising generation. China, coming to full strength, is the spectacular comeback of the age. The real news of the century so far. Not that it's too big to fail, or that its air and water aren't too foul to live with, but it's too busy, too bright to put down, too linked with us by business and tourist and student traffic, too bent on being our equal in peace to let the tensions boil over. The contradictions are inside China, creative imagination under the tight screws of dictatorship. They're also inside us. Could we stand to discover that it's a Chinese world and that we just live in it? China Today, China Tomorrow is this hour around our guest Bill Kirby's question in his book, Can China Lead? As indeed it does thrive. Can it get out of its own booby traps in culture and politics? Reporter Evan Osnos of The New Yorker will speak speak his profile of Xi Jinping, the nearest thing to an all-powerful Chinese leader since Mao. Mabel Chan, media entrepreneur, will scan the protest eruptions in Hong Kong and the Chinese government's menacing responses as a model of rage and danger everywhere under the surface. And we'll hear some of my own conversation in Beijing with Ai Weiwei about the China that has been destroyed and the China that's indestructible. First, from Beijing last summer, these were the voices of students with me at the elite Peking University. I asked them for impressions of their own generation on the rise. We as a people, as a nation, lack a philosophy that supports the spiritual life of our citizens. That's the that's a universal a problem in, in the whole country, I think. My generation is definitely a lot more adept with the internet and is very connected with the outer world, much more so than the generations before. I think we'll call ourselves not really the rising generation, but the boosting generation, the blossoming generation, meaning we are about to open up ourselves and explore the outer world, just like the flower blossoms. Just like the cat in their dormitory. Our guest, Bill Kirby, is an historian in the lineage of John King Fairbank, who invented China studies at Harvard in the 1930s. He's back and forth to China every month or two, gathering material for his China X course online with a vast audience in China and elsewhere. Bill Kirby, put today's China on a timeline, maybe of dynasties going back 3,000 years, or maybe just the last 100 years. Where are we? Well, I would look at it in two ways. I think the dynastic tradition still informs a lot of what we see as contemporary political culture. For example, the Chinese Communist Party uh, conquered China militarily, like the Qing, uh, like the Ming. Uh, and Conquered, y- you say, not, con- a, not a universal revolution. There was no revolution in the sense of a bottom-up uh, hmm. peasant uprising. No, it was a uh, a conquest of the country uh, primarily through set battles of a very traditional sort. Uh, and they had better generals, and they won decisively in the Civil War of 1946 to 1949. But as a conquest dynasty, and you, the, the heirs of that conquest, like princes uh, of earlier generations, 
of a, of a conquest dynasty are still the ones leading in power, the princelings as we call them, the sons and to some, and to some degree the daughters of the elite in a system that, as the phrase says, one conquers from horseback, but in, throughout history, successful enduring dynasties do not rule from horseback. Hmm. At the moment, however, this is a dynasty that has yet to dismount. And we'll come to the princelings again in the matter of but I would uh, say, Xi Jinping. But go ahead. But I would just say that if you look as a, as, as a modern historian, I look at both China as a place of a great and ancient civilization, home to one of the greatest and the greatest continuous civilization in world history. And yet it is also a new country, a new country born on the ashes of the old empire in 1911, born on the ashes of the Qing. And over the last 100 years, it has remade itself as a nation state, as a Chinese nation state ruling over a multinational, Mm. multicultural empire, united it, not just first by the communists, but first by others uh, militarily, developed it in time, economically, defended it also from all sorts of external dangers. And I think what one sees in many areas today uh, in terms of China's great growth, uh, its prosperity, uh, its military strength, Hmm. its educational strength today, we see the rise of great Chinese universities such as Peking University. This is not just the result of China since Deng Xiaoping over the last 20, 30, or 40 years. Hmm. This is a hundred and more years in the making. Starting when and who who had the notion? Uh, you're including the republic in the 30s and the, uh, the, the communists, early communists, late communists, many varieties of, of communists today. What, what are the main continuities? And well, as again, who gets the credit? Well, let's, let's take a look. Um, China is a military power to be reckoned with, a great power in the world. Uh, this new Chinese state of 1911 had to defend itself in a very dangerous world. Uh, But by 1945, with victory over Japan in the Second World War, China was by then a great power. China in 1945, not as Mao Zedong would put it in 1949, China had stood up. China, and indeed nationalist China, not Mm -hmm. communist China, defeated or outlasted Japan in the Second Sino-Japanese War. And if you want to see the growth of Chinese military strength. Just compare the duration and the outcomes of the first and second Chinese-Japanese wars. The first one, the Japanese defeat the Qing overnight in 1894-95. Then for eight years, Japan cannot defeat China, and China is a founding member of the United Nations. So in military strength, it's uh, already a great power, and quite frankly, uh, only the communist victory uh, and Mao Zedong's own peculiar foreign policy which disengaged China both from the West and from the Eastern Bloc, uh, made China a much more endangered power in the 1950s and in 1960s than otherwise it might have been. Speak to the uh, contradictions, and they're endless. But right there, you speak of a conquest regime with a kind of continuous elite that's still taking care of the first families. Uh, At the same time, they're practicing, dare we say, a rapacious capitalism. The equality standards whether we like them or not, we associate with Mao, seem to be out the window. Uh, how, many, how many of these contradictions can we handle? Can they handle? Well, first, let's start with the first one of continuities. So China is unified in the Republic of China effectively by military people. First president of the Republic, Yuan Shikai, Chiang Kai-shek after, Mao Zedong after him. They're all 
you know, in the 1920s and the 1930s, the, the so-called wargord era. But, you know, a wargord is what you call a loser. And if you win, you become chairman. Mm. And the, if you want to know who is number one in China from 1927, from Chiang Kai-shek's ascendance to national power, to today, just ask yourself, who is chairman of the National Military Commission? That person is the number one person either in nationalist China or in communist China. And the military has been and remains the core of the foundation of both of those regimes, in nationalists on the mainland and the PRC on the mainland. We had the first golden age of Chinese capitalism in the 1920s and the 1930s under the nationalist period. And we're living in the second one today. When you think about how well China appears to be doing today, and it is doing remarkably well, just imagine how well China would have been doing without the 30 lost years of the misrule of Mao Zedong. But there are broad continuities. Mm -hmm. The leaders of Chinese business associations today uh, often associate their success uh, with those of their predecessors of the early Republican period. And then the last area of continuity I would point to the, fa the, the person whom, who used to be called the father of modern China in this country, that's Sun Yat-sen. Mm. He's really the father of what I would call the developmental state. He wrote a book in 1921 called The International Development of China, in which he called for tens of thousands of miles of roads, of railroads, an infrastructure state run by a technocracy. A technocracy that he translated, he translated that term as the dictatorship of the engineer. <laughs> I and was if you, waiting for that. And if you want to, a good definition of the Chinese government today, it is a dictatorship of engineers. And, you know, when, when my, you know, this country is run by lawyers, China is run by engineers. Uh, different paths uh, chosen, perhaps. But we have today uh, an infrastructure state that has been planned since the 1920s, Sun Yat-sen was the first one to come up with the idea of the Three Gorges Dam. But now it is being built by engineers and by a very powerful government of the kind that Sun Yat-sen imagined but himself could not build. Mm. On this matter of contradictions, the novelist Yu Hua said to me, it's, it's, in China you go into, you rent a hotel room and you go in and there's an ashtray with a gift package of cigarettes under a no smoking sign. This is what we have to learn to live with. But a capitalist regime that calls itself communist, speak, you know, throughout, <laughs> Bill, to the point of the contradiction of a party control, maybe more absolute than it's ever been today, and the, the crying out for a creative uh, class, creative evolution, collaboration, intellectual fire, spark in a, in a different economy. Well, I think in that context, the crying out for that spark uh, is there in part because that spark is so frequently doused uh, by political leadership. So why is what appears to be the most powerful government in the world, a government that can get things done, that can build roads and railroads and airports, the likes of which we will never see in our lifetime in this country, mm -hmm. sadly. Uh, how can it be so afraid uh, of one essayist, Leo Chabot, and give him basically a Nobel Prize by imprisoning him for 11 years for an essay that he wrote uh, just uh, about five or six years ago? What is the sense of deep insecurity uh, in what appears to be such a powerful 
powerful state. I don't think you see this level of repression without deep, deep insecurity. We're going to hear it again in the voice of Ai Weiwei. Coming up, in China, as in Rome back in the day, people speak of good emperors and bad emperors. So how do we score Xi Jinping? Evan Osnos, who was the New Yorker's man in China, is going to take the measure of the party chairman. This is Open Source on China. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. On the subject of China rising with Professor Bill Kirby and others, in November 2012, only two and a half years ago, a princeling of that revolutionary party elite, Xi Jinping, became party chairman, the fifth man since Mao to rule the People's Republic. Very quickly, he's had a decisive hand on all the levers of power. I asked Evan Osnos of The New Yorker magazine, for a conversational profile. Xi Jinping was shaped more so than any other Chinese leader of his generation by history in some very clear and and quite remarkable ways. He comes from communist aristocracy, which sounds like a contradiction, except that from the very origins of the Chinese Communist Party, there was always an elite. There was a group of revolutionaries who were understood to be the vanguard. These were the men who had, and they were almost all men, who had led the revolution. They had fought the the nationalists. They had fought the Japanese. And when they came to power in 1949, they believed in an almost semi-divine right to rule. And Xi Jinping grew up in that world. His father was a man named Xi Zhongxun, who had joined the revolution when he was 14 years old, his entire life had been dedicated to making revolution. In fact, he joined the Communist Party while he was in prison as a teenager. He'd gone to prison at the age of 14 for trying to poison a teacher at school who he believed was not supportive of the revolution. So Xi Jinping grew up with his father's story. Xi Jinping has said, in fact, that his father talked so much to his children about being a revolutionary and the glory of that, that as his son put it, we got calluses on our ears. (laughs) But what's really interesting to me is the moment that Xi Jinping made a decision, which was at the end of the Cultural Revolution, a lot of the people his age, who the sons and daughters of the party elite, were going to the United States to get PhDs. They were going to Hong Kong to go go into business. Frankly, they'd had enough of politics. And Xi Jinping made a very different decision, and he doubled down on the party. He joined the party. He started to rise up through the ranks. And he said to his friends that, in effect, this was his best chance to make an impact in his country. And from that period, you see a very systematic, ruthlessly pragmatic approach to his building his career. Evan, there's something you've got to help us understand here. His entry into the party, age 21 or so, sounds like a man joining a priestly order. It's more than pragmatism. It's against the evidence of his father's life, and he can't get devout enough. Over the years, people have made the comparison between the Communist Party and the Vatican. You know, when you join the Communist Party, as, as Xi Jinping did in his teens, it's a devotional act. You're saying, in effect that I endorse and I give myself over to this party completely. And what that means is that 
many of us who sit and look at China and try to wonder to what degree can a leader like Xi Jinping point the country in a different direction? For instance, would he ever decide to go down a path of liberal democracy? For him, that idea is as ludicrous as the idea of somebody ascending to the papacy and then deciding essentially to give up the basic tenets of the Catholic Church in favor of some new idea. Hmm. The, the interesting thing is that at the same time that he is a fundamentalist or orthodox communist, he is also, in economic terms, highly pragmatic. Evan, one of your good sources speaks of Xi Jinping as being round on the outside, square on the inside. What does that mean? What it means is that he presents the appearance of being soft and open to alternative ideas, but is in fact very, very hard on the inside. He is a quite a modern politician. He understands the give and take. He is good in a crowd. People like him when he goes overseas. But in the center of that, he is willing to do what is absolutely necessary to defeat his opponents and eliminate threats to his rule and make sure that his ideas are executed. What we all want to know is what is the Chinese emperor saying to himself when he's pacing the floor in the middle of the night? Imagine it. Summon him. In your own words, Evan. You know, when Xi Jinping wakes up in the middle of the night, he is confronted by an absolutely staggering range of political and economic problems. He thinks to himself, I have to maintain the ideological supremacy of the Communist Party in an era when there is no other high-functioning Communist Party in the world today. I have to somehow convince a generation of young people who have been raised on The Daily Show and on Western action movies that, in fact, it's to their benefit to allow the Communist Party to censor the movies and the news and the internet that they receive. Somehow I have to figure out a way to take this economic engine that was so essential to China's rise over the last generation, and I have to figure out how to give it another generation of power when, frankly, all of the low-hanging fruit is already gone. China's no longer involved in the rapid catch-up period of its economic growth. In fact, it now has to become an innovative economy. It has to unleash those creative forces that are embedded within Chinese universities and, and private businesses. And I have to do all of it while not alienating my peers in the senior ranks of the Communist Party and the military, the people who have the ability, if they choose, to push me out of power. And that is a, a staggering set of challenges. And I think there's a reason why when we look at Xi Jinping today in video and photos and you see him in person in Beijing, he doesn't look like a man at rest. He looks like a man who is carrying a heavy, heavy burden on his back. And I think he is. That was the New Yorker magazine's Evan Osnos in conversation with me this week. There's a longer excerpt of our conversation on our website, radioopensource.org. Bill Kirby, in the middle of the night, what is, as he paces what is Xi Jinping worrying about? Well, he will be worrying about all of the things that Evan just talked about. Uh, what he has been worried about over the last two and a half years was first and foremost in gaining power in a very near thing uh, by which, in the period in the struggle between himself and uh, those allied to Bo Xilai. 
Boshulai now disgraced, and nobody knows where, why, or what. But well, we know we know he's in prison, and we know he's disgraced, and we know he's been convicted of uh, various crimes. But you know, he will have Mr. Xi will have survived uh, yet another messy transition in the history of the People's Republic. There's only been one uneventful. Uh, political transition without either violence or a purge. And in this case, we've had a major purge that has accompanied Mr. Xi coming to power. So he was worried about gaining power. And of course, he's worried about keeping it. And in keeping it, he's a, he has adapted many of Bo Xilai's own policies, a vigorous top-down uh, crusade against so-called corruption. And there's a lot of corruption to crusade against. Uh, a res- restoration of Maoist symbols to restore some of the early symbols of legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party, and third, a kind of a strident nationalism. Uh, but when, we hear, when I hear corruption charges, I, I, I wonder, is this purge, as you say, and that's been going on, or is it punishment for real, for real sins? There is massive corruption uh, in China, and it's a corruption that is endemic in almost every one-party state. But there is – it's very difficult not to have corruption in a world in which officials are paid as little as officials are in China. Do you know, uh, Chris, what, what uh, uh, President Xi Jinping's salary is? I've I heard it. Something like $17,000 or – No, no, no. He got a raise this year and his salary is now, I believe, $22,500. Wow. A little living, bit, living big, a living little large. A little bit less than what we pay graduate students uh, <laughs> at Harvard University. Uh, so – but – what, when, what he must worry about is that, yes, he believes that only the Chinese Communist Party can save China. He, I, I have absolutely no doubt that he believes it. But his political toolbox, that of the Chinese Communist Party, its ideological toolbox is so old and so weak uh, in comparison. He lives in a world in which the people, such as these Peking University students whom we heard earlier, what they know to be true and what they are told to be true. The distance between these two things gets larger every day. Mm -hmm. And so it is a heroic, but in my view, ultimately hopeless effort to think of how one convinces people to study again, as Peking University students are today being told, to study dialectical materialism, to study Marxism and Leninism without reading Marx and Lenin, Mm -hmm. and to basically study the glorious history of the Chinese Communist Party. But it's a belief... And here's here's the challenge for him. Sun Yat-sen once said, the mandate of heaven does not last forever. Uh, Many revolutionaries have said this about other regimes. But the fact is in history, everywhere, no political party anywhere rules forever. And the question that must worry Mr. Xi is because it is not a question of if, it's a question of when and how. There's a political transition in in China. Mm. How and what his position will be when that challenge comes. Mabel Chan is in our WBUR studio tonight. She was a journalist and a news anchor for Hong Kong Television and then a CNN and NBC producer in the United States. She has her own online story platform now for China Watchers everywhere. It's called China Personified. Mabel Chan, what what do you think Xi Jinping uh, is worrying about? And I want you to answer Hong Kong. And I want you to take that story apart. Open it up. You take it personally. Chris, you are right. I think that Xi Jinping probably is restless, sleepless, thinking about Hong Kong. 
Today, as we're on air, is Thursday. Tuesday, the Hong Kong legislature just passed overwhelmingly, I would like to say, against a compromise deal that would basically mm. allow Hong Kong people to, cho- to choose their next leader in 2017 uh, without nominating, without the right to nominate. This was the Beijing the fix, but you're saying it's not working, it's not holding. It's not uh, acceptable to the Hong Kong people, represented by most of the pro-democracy groups within the legislature. What that means is that they are probably going to reconvene, regroup, and consider another wave of protest. As Mm. you remember, Chris, last fall was started at one spot in central Hong Kong, you know, the heart of uh, Hong Kong's financial district, spread very quickly in Mm. a matter of days uh, to other spots that are equally important in terms of business, uh, finance. Mom-and-pop shops in Mong Kok were also uh, affected. They have to close business. And it led to conflict. It led to more people coming out uh, over a period of 75 days. Uh, it blocked traffic. It was chaos. I'm still unclear who are the protesters, how are they different from the Tiananmen students, what are the issues? What's the class differential? We think of Hong Kong as, you know, it has its issues, but it's a, it's a rich little jewel under the Brits and still. That's under, what it appears, doesn't it, uh, Chris? Um, I go back to Hong Kong every year to see my family. Uh, everyone is in Hong Kong. I see them twice a year as much as possible. Every year when I go back, I see Hong Kong people's way of life is squeezed is spoiled and sabotaged because of of the condition. It's, it's socially and spatially squeezed because more and more uh, visitors from mainland China are allowed to come in to shop, to buy. And that is to all settle, fine. It's great, it's, great, it's great for Hong Kong's economy. But, but the, the problem is that Hong Kong is such a small uh, place. And uh, Hong Kong people are seeing them coming in and taking over. Not, uh, they're being labeled as locusts, and that's a bad term. But the reason they're labeled as locusts is that they come in masses and they have suitcases. They are buying up and they're demanding a lot of attention without lining up or without any consideration for other people. It creates social conflict uh, between people and people. And I've personally seen fights broken out, and I've seen photos taken between the mainland tourists and the Hong Kong people fighting over something stupid as vegetables or, or, or some, some goods in the mall. And they are then posted on social media as a way to get more people to be sympathetic and to support Hong Kong people's cause that since the handover in 97, they feel as if their way of life, this is about way of life, that is being, like I said, squeezed spatially. You care because you're a Hong Kong person. I'm wondering, how is it typical or not of a tension and a disruption that could happen anywhere in China in the next five years? Hong Kong is not like any other city in China. Hong Kong is arguably the most westernized modernized, open, and free 
city um, and is enjoy that kind of freedom and access to the outside world. And it has been called shopping paradise. There are a lot of tourists who have come through through Hong Kong. They know what Hong Kong is like. There are a lot of expatriates uh, who have clearly families all over the country and many, many immigrants uh, from Hong Kong, self-included, not only in America, but in Australia, in uh, elsewhere and in Europe. When something in Hong Kong breaks in terms of chaos that you saw that last 75 days, including the conflict between the police and the people using pepper spray, it galvanized immediate attention. The international media is there right away. Uh, but what resonates community- in the rest of China it, uh, around a general issue of uh, centralized manipulation and control over fundamental impulses toward expression these, and freedom? These protesters are so vocal and so visual about what they want and what they don't want. They have all these placards calling on the leader of Hong Kong to step down. They mock them. They are actually directing their anger at the Hong Kong leader because they see the Hong Kong leader as a puppet of the uh, Beijing regime. They're not so bold as to call on any of the Chinese leaders to step down. But the problem for Xi Jinping, because that was your original question, which I haven't Mm -hmm. forgotten, is that at what point does his sort of hands-off policy becomes hands-on? Because what the Hong Kong people are asking for is accountability of the Hong Kong leader, which is, uh, who is now C.Y. Leung, who is being labeled as a puppet. They are pressing C.Y. Leung to be accountable to them, the people, not to the party. So Xi Jinping is got a face with this sort of very vocal and very uh, able group of people who can get sympathy, get support to side with them and not with China. Bill Kirby, how many analogies, how many situations could erupt around China um, on these fundamental lines between control and democratic expression? Well, there are hundreds of thousands of demonstrations uh, in China every year. Uh, And they're often on issues... Mm that are about control uh, in a matter of how people can control aspects of their daily life uh, that it seems not in their immediately in their immediate grasp, for example, on issues of pollution or issues of uh, urban planning or land seizures and so on. But the Hong Kong situation is really different in the sense you have fundament in a way that you do not have in, in these uh, gatherings on the mainland, uh, a fundamental question of political legitimacy. Uh, you've got a chief executive appointed by Beijing who has authority but no legitimacy in, term, mm. in Hong Kong. And you have a legislature that's elected, but has, and so it has that legitimacy, but it has almost no authority. Hold it there. We're going to hear vib- you know, echoes of that exact point in a moment. Coming up, China's profile in what is known as soft power, meaning not just economic influence, but the narrative a country presents to the world, its moral example, even its charm with the artist Ai Weiwei and the broadcaster in Beijing, Kaiser Guo. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Power and standing, as they relate to China and the China century, are about more than military might or GNP. Soft power is the catch-all for 
other elements of national history, culture, and character that become reputation and influence. They're dimensions in which modern China, shall we say, is still proving itself. I checked Wikipedia, says United States is number one in soft power around the world, and China doesn't make anything like the top 10. In Beijing last summer, a canny and connected media practitioner, Kaiser Guo, who was American-born but just as deeply immersed in all things Chinese, said China has a problem. China doesn't groove very well. China doesn't have... Uh, China has a real soft power problem. And uh, I think that, that, that China can be likened to a Chinese man trying to date. You know, he may be hitting the gym now. He may be trying to quit smoking. He may be uh, making some decent money now and driving a decent car and wearing decent clothing now. He may have stopped eating quite so much garlic, and, and maybe he's, he's learned English pretty well even. But, you know, he need only really look at the personal ads in any old city paper to figure out that what women, I mean, in my stupid analogy here, that's the, the rest of the world. What they're really after are people with a sense of humor and some confidence. And China, unfortunately, tends to swing from self-loathing introversion to a bullying swagger without settling comfortably into that middle ground of, of confidence that's, that's attractive. And I, I really worry that they're getting that whole soft power thing utterly wrong. That was the broadcaster and podcaster Kaiser Guo in Beijing. At an angle of attack going much deeper, the sculptor and conceptual artist Ai Weiwei, the most famously immovable critic of the Chinese government, told me inside his heavily surveilled Beijing studio that this latest iteration of the long revolutionary project, the capitalist development boom, is as mindless as the cultural revolution ever was in the 1960s. Ai Weiwei says the government today, marvelous as it looks, is destroying more than it builds. I often take the train, even I, I notice I've been followed in train stations <laughs> and, uh, and the hotel lobbies, but uh, nobody can, can ignore, you know, that China has been uh, going through a really fast developing and uh, made a lot of uh, progress and uh, there's some kind of credit there. But when we talk about uh, change, there's several things we have to mention uh, to whom this change is made for. I mean, you know, what kind of society and what kind of people we are, we are preparing this for. I think you can you can buy everything, you can build everything, but uh, how you build the human spirit, how yeah. you build, uh, you know, how you make young people feel hope and uh, have energy, have imagination and creativity. Those things I, I really think a lot and are worried about, you know, because uh, those are human uh, inner structures. And uh, I think after 100 years of, you know, uh, revolution and all kind of class struggle, what they destroyed the most is the, the foundation of uh, this culture. Philosophy, the so-called the moral and the aesthetics, completely, completely destroyed many, many times and continuously. So that's pretty modern. You know, you have such empty space, uh, which you know, in China, is such a large society, have a long history and uh, uh, such a complexity there, but it's, uh, but it's totally a vacuum but with a very strong uh, sense of control and uh, sensor. So it's very quite a strange uh, stage we are in. Speak of those two cities that you know very well, Shanghai and New York. 
You thrived in New York in a semi-underground mode, but it was still the financial capital of the universe. Uh, why can't Shanghai leave a creative space, a celebrated, open space for artists like you? And will it eventually? Never, never. You know, Shanghai will never be a capital for any kind of creativity. It's just、uh, impossible for those people. This kind of mentality, they they just a、uh, a kind of people just want to take advantage of a modern world. They try to steal all everything from the you know contemporary. Bring effort,、mm. which is made by Western civilization in past in the effort of hundred years,、mm. uh, and they just they just kind of steal it. You know, they think they can buy it, but they they cannot touch the spirit of the very common essential values, such as、mm. human rights, such as、uh, freedom of speech,、mm. and、uh, such as independent mind. How can a society live like that? That was the. Artist Ai Weiwei. You can hear lots more of Mr. Ai and of Kaiser Guo on our website, RadioOpenSource.org. Bill Kirby, count up as you see it the costs, which, which he Ai Weiwei makes very, very touching. The costs of this revolutionary season since the seventies, the capitalist period. Well, I think the, the great destruction of traditional Chinese culture isn't really from that period so much. Although it's, you know, capitalism、uh, is a dissolver of traditional cultures and of traditional beliefs in in, in many many parts of the world. But the revolution itself、uh, in upending family values, of turning family members against family members,、mm-hmm. of turning Mao Zedong into this extraordinary uh, demigod uh, uh, whose own words. Uh, replaced those of the ancient classics in the way they had to be memorized in order to learn and to live your life in a new and revolutionary way.、Mm. This did more to destroy、uh, what what the communists called old culture、uh, than anything else, in my view. But I would not agree、uh, that the future is as dark as Ai Weiwei has it to be. I actually think Shanghai, Beijing today. Are hubs of creativity. I think that in many areas in the arts, we are on the edge of a new Chinese Renaissance. But we have to ask the question, and you asked this question before, of soft power. China has extraordinary hard power. It's getting stronger militarily. It has infrastructure hard power in a kind that we and many other parts of the world admire. But it is not admired for what you might call.、Uh, Conceptions of governance or conceptions of Chinese civilization today.、Uh, China became the leading civilization in East Asia and defined what civilization was for East Asia、uh, by being home to some of the greatest philosophers and political thinkers in global history, who conceived of con- forms of family governance, of uh, political governance,、uh, of how people should be ruled. Throughout East Asia,、uh, for nearly two millennia, today, leading Chinese universities like People's University、uh, are trying, founded as a communist、uh, and indeed the Soviet university, are re-emphasizing、uh, the classics, home to one of the better、uh, schools of traditional Chinese culture.、Uh, younger generations are. Teaching their children classics again. How this will matter politically,、mm. how this will matter culturally, really remains to be seen. But I would not rule out a a search for 
roots within the Chinese past that can help define China's future in the 21st century. You know, in fairness to Ai Weiwei, I just got to say, and it's in that longer podcast of our conversation, uh, he, he's not entirely dark. He says they've destroyed everything, but the Chinese are amazing people. They're witty people. They can yeah. think two tracks at once. They love freedom. They, they have great humor. They have great connectivity among themselves. I mean, he just could go on and on about the beauties of the Chinese personality and temperament, which I don't think he thinks is destroyed. I mean, the economy may be one thing. The village is one thing. Uh, but Mabel Chan, I'm, I'm wondering what you hear in, in Ai Weiwei's kind of uh, lament. And it, it is deep. Well, when it comes to tradition... One aspect of the Chinese political rule that is deeply paternalistic, running the country like a family business, and Xi Jinping is being mocked as she who must be obeyed. (laughs) Growing up, we feel as if we always have to obey authority as a way to show love, to show loyalty. The, The challenge for Xi Jinping when it comes to Hong Kong is that they don't necessarily define love of country as love of the party. And that's one major test that he needs to be confronted with and and need to figure out how to uh, really handle the situation. How how would you put it to him? This fascinates me, the, the belief in the party as a deeply religious attachment. The party can do no wrong. And he means it. Not just uh, we've got a good average here. The party, there is something divine. There is something sacred. There's something anointed by the wisdom of the party. How would you, how would you tell him no? I would say give it a rest. In, in the case of Hong Kong, um, it really has grown up as a city that's really been westernized and modernized uh, under British rule. And it has a generation of highly educated, highly tech-savvy generation that they can opt for a different way of living and uh, and succeeding without having to just follow the tradition of being a teacher or a lawyer or a uh, all kinds of professionals that are deemed respectable. Give them room, give them time to show that they can uh, run the the city the way it is promised. And I think trust is a huge issue that, of course, everyone has alluded to. In the case of Hong Kong, it's really, uh, there needs to be a give and take. Right now, the difficult dilemma is the generation of protesters is extremely unyielding, uncompromising. Mm. And uh, I can see measures being taken to try to ease the tension uh, as recently as maybe a month ago, there is a visa curb uh, in allowing Shenzhen visitors only once a week going to Hong Kong as opposed to before unlimited visits, trying to basically alleviate the, the feeling of being squeezed and being, uh, being uh, trampled upon uh, by, by people coming in from mainland China. Come back to the destruction of values that I was speaking about. Something very practical and real, concrete, in, on the matter of families. The, the, the modern economy that is building up the, the rim is devastating the villages, and it's taking a whole generation of young workers out from under the missing generation between parents and small children, um, incredibly disruptive, not only economically and emotionally, but even to the sanctity of family. Bill, uh, 
who's to correct that? Who's to, who's to highlight the expense of, of that piece of modern China? Well, I think that the Chinese family has shown actually extraordinary resilience in attempts to deliberately destroy it or to divide it in the early revolutionary period. And uh, what you might call economic realities that have divided families uh, in migrant workers' families, uh, in farming families, uh, in military families, in a whole range. But this is an institution that has been the building block of Chinese society for millennia. Uh, it is not easy to destroy. And indeed, I think sense of family, when everything else falls apart, for example, in and after the Cultural Revolution, what does one have to rely on in a political system without reliable institutions except family? Families and friends, classmates, these are, in fact, the building blocks of the relationships that forge the personal lives of many Chinese, of most Chinese today, I should say. And uh, I, am, I, I do not believe for a moment that the, that the Chinese family or the sense of it being absolutely central uh, to one's life uh, is in danger. Come back to the matter of can China lead, but also the whole question of the China century. It's still unclear to me what Xi Jinping and China wants. In he has speak he, he has spoken in, in Evan Osnos's New Yorker piece of an equal relationship, of a something like a a, a special relationship with the United States, and almost a co trusteeship of the of, of the world. Uh, but he doesn't want to be number one. That's a that's not the place to be. And Obama has not encouraged the idea of, uh, you know, even a even the British-American kind of special relationship, or the American-Israeli special relationship. Where is that going? You know, it's a great question because when I was talking with people in China about this book, Can China Lead?, I had many people in authority tell me, well, you know, why would we want to? Look what's happened <laughs> to you, uh, thinking of that, of the state of the United States. I think that the question of, of leadership here, you know, China was the richest civilization on earth, the largest, the most sophisticated empire on earth, little more than two centuries ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it's returning to a natural position of eminence, surely of centrality in East Asia, uh, and uh, in modern terms of being a great power, not necessarily the great power, or the one, as in the United States today, uh, the one superpower. Uh, and this is a historically natural state of affairs. But to, to do that, and, and this addresses the concerns that many people have that a rise of China will somehow inevitably lead to military confrontation with the United States or others. I think Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders understand that China's rise has been coterminous with peace. Mm. China's prosperity since 1978 has been in the same period of time, the longest period of peace in East Asia since the Opium War. Without peace, there is no prosperity. Without peace, there is no foreign investment of the kind that we have seen in China or overseas Chinese investment, Hong Kong, Taiwan investment, uh, that has been so central to this resurgence since 1978. Uh, China needs peace. China needs partners for peace and for prosperity. And I think being not necessarily even co-equal, but being among equals uh, is a goal. So in military matters, they're doing fine. Education, extraordinary. Infrastructure, remarkable. What's the, what's the question in can China lead? 
the biggest question is whether or not can China match in the political front uh, the bold reforms that have accompanied its economic development, uh, have accompanied its infrastructure development. Is this a place in which this regime finally can dismount and use the great civilian talent of the Chinese people for enduring systems with legitimacy of governance? We've we've terribly neglected the whole environmental crisis. Uh, I've been watching that film Under the Dome, made by an incredibly inventive and persuasive sort of two-hour TED Talk by a young woman who talking about the the awful burden of chemicals, metals in the air, et cetera. Um, There would be a a, a perfectly marvelous place for China to start. We'll show you how. I think they can do that, actually. I mean, this... I mean, anyone who's been to any great Chinese city, sadly, even including Hong Kong recently, knows the t- terrible cost of pollution. Absolutely. But this is a, if this is a government that I think when it decides, as it seems to have, to seriously address this issue, will begin to make progress that will be, quite frankly, visible. It's important. Bill Kirby, thank you so much. Mabel Chan, thank you, and good luck to Hong Kong. Thanks also <laughs> to Adam Mitchell and Shuang Lu. We're going out on the soundtrack from the film To Live. Maybe the best movie I ever saw, Bill. On our website, we've got more sound and images of Bill Kirby's case studies among the Chinese people, artists, and my own, my own postcards in conversation with artists, authors, and street vendors, too. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Max Larkin, and Pat Tomeno. George Hicks is our audio engineer. Mary McGrath is our general secretary. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time for Open Source.